0: If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. We will come to this later in the sermon. Keep your Bibles handy. In Psalm 8, the psalmist asks, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? As we've seen, the Sermon on the Mount tells us about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be a part of that kingdom. And the question is, how are we supposed to think if we are part of the kingdom of heaven? What is to be our worldview? It's something we've been talking about now for three weeks. Everybody has a worldview, okay? a perception of the world based on certain assumptions that they have. Because they are assumptions, they are usually unexamined. They're just simply assumed to be the case. So in this series, I'm not trying to prove the things that I'm talking about as much as to show that if we belong to the kingdom, these are the things that we are assumed, that we should assume to be true. And as I've mentioned, uh, while I am speaking about a kingdom worldview, I will contrast it with other worldviews, particularly that the culture surrounding us. So far, we've looked at three questions. Um, just to remind you, uh, if we have assumptions, how do we how do we get to the heart of it? I've suggested there are certain questions that we should ask, that if we answer these questions, we will begin to understand what the assumptions are that we make. The first question was, what is first cause? First cause being that which caused all things to happen, came before everything. When you go to the very, very, very beginning, it was the first thing that was there. And for me, the issue, Sometimes it gets, you know, the waters get muddy. I think the issue is, was it personal or was it impersonal? And I would argue that first cause can only have personal agency. It must be personal. It can't be some type of impersonal force. The second question was, what is the nature of creation? Um, If we're to have a kingdom worldview, how are we to view God's creation? And I've said that we should view it as gift and we should view it as blessing. The third question, which we looked at last week, is what is a human being? And as I tell my students, because this, I give my first lecture wherever I teach is on worldview, this is the big question. And so we talked about it last week. We're going to talk about it again today, and Lord willing, again next Sunday. What does it mean to be a human being? Um, How we view creation will strongly affect and impact how we view what it means to be human. There are two possible ways to look at creation. Uh, Words I had to look up, by the way, mimesis and poiesis. Mimesis means that creation has a given order. It has a given meaning. Poiesis says that, in fact, creation is raw material and we take this raw material, and we give it meaning, we give it purpose. Our society has moved, I should say society, our civilization has moved from seeing creation as having a God-given purpose to now something that we as human beings are to give it purpose. As one author put it, We all live in a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we necessarily need to conform ourselves to or passively accept. And think about the matter of farming, agriculture, that in the past, let's look at the medieval period, farming technology by modern standards was quite primitive. Uh, Farmers were utterly dependent on the geography and the weather So a farmer would plow the ground, he would scatter the seed, not having any control over the weather, minimal control over the soil. And so whether or not his crop would be successful or not, he would have little say over it. He did what he could, and the rest was left up to the ground, to the weather, ultimately left up to God. In such a world, the created order is seen as really being authoritative, and human beings are sort of at its whim. In the modern world, uh, we have modern technology, uh, agricultural technology, and the farmer is less and less dependent. So irrigation systems, soil science, fertilizers, pest control, so that, humanly speaking at least, we have greater control over the crops, and whether or not we will be successful. As a result, going from the farming analogy, creation is seen in a very different light, and so are human beings, something we'll talk about in a minute. That is, we are less and less dependent. We see ourselves as independent. What we find in Scripture, in Genesis 1, is God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This runs contrary to so much modern thinking today. Because in our world, self-creation is the routine part of what it means to be a human being. The social imaginary. That I can create my own persona. In the same way that we imagine we have control over our environment, Um, It was kind of cold here this morning so we turned on the heaters and now it's a a bit warmer. We imagine that we have control over our environment and so we then begin to imagine we have control over who we are and that we are independent, not dependent. What we find in the creation story is that we are made in the image of the creator, that God is the ultimate presupposition, that we are created by a personal God, not by some blind, purposeless uh, forces of nature. God is first cause, and so he's the one who creates us. And we are made in the image of the creator, both male and female. That's the universality of it. Um, because God is the creator of all things, we who bear his image are accountable to him. That is, to be a human being, in fact, involves great responsibility. To fulfill these responsibilities, as we saw last Sunday, two things are required. One is vocation or calling, and the other is devotion. Because, you see, we have purpose. God has given us a purpose. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven ten. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is our purpose. To back up a bit, I mentioned several Sundays ago that three metaphors emerged during the scientific revolution to describe what then was called nature as opposed to creation. If you have creation, you have to have a creator. If you have nature, maybe not not necessary. The first is book, which actually preceded the scientific revolution. Uh, We have people like Augustine and others saying that there are two books. We have scripture, and then we have the book of creation that tells us about God. But in the scientific revolution, it sort of took on a different uh, spin. The second is clock. The third are laws of governing, that is, the principles. Uh, I think it's the clock metaphor that had the strongest impact, um, and it it resulted in a mechanistic view of everything, So, nature and everything in it is seen as purely material. There's nothing which cannot be perceived by the senses. It's all material, and it can all be viewed in mechanistic terms. It's all material. In 1980, PBS presented a 13-part series called Cosmos, uh, narrated by the astronomer Carl Sagan. He opened the series with the following statements. The cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. The series is based on a book that Sagan had written. It's gone through several editions, and in the 2013 edition, uh, one of the uh, prefaces written by Anne uh, Druyan, who worked with uh, Sagan on the film series. She writes, as with everything Carl wrote, the science of cosmos is solid with big rhetorical red flags warning the reader when the author ventures into the speculative. I would say no, because the very first statement was in fact a speculative statement. How can I... How can someone who lives in 1980 say that this is all that has ever been or ever will be? Because I wasn't there at the beginning and I will not be here at the end. She continued, the universe revealed by the relentless error correcting mechanisms of science was to him infinitely preferable to the untested assumptions of traditional belief. In other words, a different worldview. He has his assumptions, traditional assumptions he pushes aside by what he believes to be a far superior worldview. I mention this because the Library of Congress has designated the book Cosmos as one of 88 books that has shaped America. So it's seen as a very significant work. And yet it seems to be forgotten that the whole book rests on a set of assumptions. One of which is that all that exists is material. By the way, if everything is material, then it is impossible to talk about things like love, good, evil, spirit, soul, anything like that, because these are things that cannot be perceived by the senses. And yet it hasn't stopped from materialists from making really some very strong statements. Uh, So for example, the functions of the mind uh, are, are seen as purely material that they are determined by the physical, material architecture, the chemical uh, events that are going on, electrical, neural. Um, And so to a strict materialist, Mother Teresa, Adolf Hitler, were human beings with unique brain chemistry who acted according to their neurology, which drove their human reason and experience. So in the words of one author, Mother Teresa's work was inspired by her biology and even her religious devotion was not a conscious mindful choice guided by her relationship with a personal God and her free will, but the result of a God gene or a moral molecule in her spiritual brain. I came across an article this week um, in which scientists and scholars are now arguing Um, that there is no such thing as free will. It is ruled out simply and decisively by the laws of physics. Let me read to you a quote. Free will is an anachronistic myth useful in the past but rendered obsolete by the power of modern data science to know us better than we know ourselves and thus to predict and manipulate our choices. And yet, it is suggested by some, If you tell people they don't have free will, they're going to freak out. So maybe it's better as though they live with the illusion of free will. They live in the matrix, if you wish. It's better to let them think that. But what do we find in the Sermon on the Mount? If you will, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, you do something wrong, you will be subject to judgment. Verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Racha is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then verse 27 You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, in that day, as among many today, if in fact a woman dresses in a particular way, it's her fault that in fact a man lusts after her. Instead of taking personal responsibility, uh, Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. A person is responsible for his or her actions his or her words and thoughts. This is the assumption we hold as what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom worldview says that, in fact, we are responsible. I think it is impossible for us to fully understand what it means to be human without first understanding who God is, um, If we are made in the image of the creator, then we must have some basic understanding of the creator. John Calvin said that there are two parts to our knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. The second depends upon the first. And so a part of our worship, not simply today, but every Sunday, is that we would come to know God our Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and have a greater sense of who he is that we might then understand ourselves better. What does it mean to be human? Let me suggest several things to you. The first is we are embodied creatures. We've talked about this. Although we cannot be reduced to our bodily functions, that is, we are more than our bodies, our bodies, in fact, are important. And this this is where maybe it gets a bit tricky for us. We experience the world through our bodies. In Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We are a combination of the material and the immaterial, or the spiritual, if you wish. We are created from matter, but we are given breath by God and brought into living existence by the very breath of God. We are our bodies, we are our souls. The two are one. We tend to think of it as two different parts. Um, On the one hand, you have the material, the body. On the other, you have the soul. One writer challenges this, I think, brilliantly. According to this verse, the verse I just read from Genesis 2, God did not make a body and put a soul in it, like a letter into an envelope. He formed man out of dust. By breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. Insofar as it lived, it was a soul. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. Another author said, Man does not have a body. He is a body. The body is the soul in an outward form. Simply put, not simplistically, hopefully, Human beings are animated earth, animated dust, which contains the very breath of God. Which if you take it in a different direction, when Jesus says that when you've given water, when you've given food, when given to, to one of the least of these, you've done it for me. Because it is the breath of God that we have within us. Our bodies are holy ground. They are sacred. And when I say our bodies, I mean our whole bodies, not simply our brains. We've talked about this before, that oftentimes our view of what it means to be a Christian or Christian discipleship is that we are brains on a stick, that it's just our brains that matter when, in fact, it is the whole person. We are to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And this isn't reduced to how we think. Okay? It isn't just our brains. It's the whole of us. Brain function is clearly an aspect of what it means to be human and what it means to be a child of God. But it is contingent on the spirit moving in us. It's not something that we have in our own ability, the power to do. God is the one who sustains us. And David wrote in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It is God who through the Holy Spirit knits together and forms all human beings. It is God who sustains the whole of our lives. It is God who puts boundaries on our physical capabilities. We are all limited. We should recognize that. But even our limits have significance. Our identity, who we really are, that's what God has done. It's envisioned, we are created, we are held by God. This is contrary to the the society, the, the culture that surrounds us today, in which one does not seek to find identity in directed activities. That is what I do as a person, but rather it is an inward quest. Uh, what Philip Reef calls the psychological man. That it's all about what I think about myself inside. So we are embodied. What does it mean to be human? It means that we are dependent. We are dependent and contingent. We are wholly dependent upon God. There is nothing that we have that has not been given to us. Kingdom worldview involves, embraces a radical dependency. We depend upon God. Just thinking of what Zeb read to us today is Jesus is before Lazarus' tomb. And what does Jesus do? he prays it's like just get to the good part just say lazarus come forth no he prays there's this real sense of dependency in a book in, written by an author whose uh, father had alzheimers he writes we are ra- we are radically dependent upon our parents families and friends or other responsible persons from the moment of our first breath and all through our formative years. And we are radically dependent upon God. For among mini- manifold graces and loves. The blessedness of everlasting life. Radical dependence challenges the ultimately isolating ends. Uh, absolute ties of our post-modern time. See western society. Western culture prizes freedom, autonomy, individualism. When the reality is we are as human beings dependent. We are dependent upon one another as human beings, but ultimately we are dependent upon God. The temporal level, we are dependent on families, on communities, on civil amenities, but fundamentally on God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. We are dependent upon the triune God. We are creatures. We are finite. We are dependent. Paul told those at Mars Hill, Areopagus, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is from the poem by Aratus, Phinomena. I'm sorry, Phinomena. If we recognize our radical dependence, then we will see that all that we have is gift. It is gifted to us by God. And whatever capacities we have, everything we have is gift. In the words of Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We are gifted, we are loved. Because God loves us and continues to care for us, even in the midst of our suffering, but even in our joys. To be a human being is to be a person, it is to be gifted, it is to be loved. The reality is, as much as we would want to tell our own stories, and the surrounding culture tells us that, um, it is God who has written our story uh, Stanley Harwas said, long story short, we don't get to make, up or make our lives up. We get to receive them as gifts. The story that says we should have no story except the story we choose when we have no story is a lie. To be human is to learn that we don't get to make up our lives because we are creatures. Christians are people who recognize that we have a father whom we can thank for our existence Christian discipleship is about learning to receive our life as gift without regret. We are not the authors of our own stories. And our calling is to learn how to read and interpret the story God has given us. And to do so faithfully and well. For those who have come to recognize God as a creator. The fact that life is a gift. Becomes transformative they no longer see their lives as they used to rather than saying as Descartes did I think therefore I am or I am because of what I can do we say I am because I am created I am dependent gifted and above all I am loved in all circumstances and for all times there are two side issues I want to deal with a bit when it comes to being dependent. The first is, deals with our human relationships, and that is community. That community is a positive good for those in it. The second is language, which comes from the Creator. And so there is both the human as well as the divine aspect. Let's talk about community. Uh, traditionally, community is that to which an individual belonged. and In that belonging, they had a sense of personhood. This is who I am. I'm a part of this community. I belong to this community. But beginning in the 18th century, uh, one would say with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, the feeling was that community in fact inhibits me. That in fact um, it is a hindrance to my full expression as an individual. So I need to set aside community, sort of go out on my own and be the individual that I am supposed to be. This has gone through various stages of development. Uh, Marx and Nietzsche, for different reasons, saw the existing community uh, as something that needs to be overthrown, need to toss it, need to get rid of it, in order for us to reach our full potential. Um, Today, communities, institutions, have become the servants of the individual and for his or her sense of well-being. So the community or institutions are no longer are no longer seen as having the function of helping to shape and form the individual. Uh, no, not at all. It is the individual that is supreme. So instead, institutions become platforms for performance. This is who I am. Rather than seeing myself as part of a community, I step apart from the community. They provide me a platform. It's a These institutions become places where individuals are allowed to be their authentic selves precisely because they are able to give expression to who they are inside. So forget the community unless it serves the function of giving me a platform on which I can perform. And anything... In that platform. Anything in that community that hinders me from giving outward expression to who I think I am inside is seen as harmful and even violent, and therefore is to be rejected. So instead of saying I want to be at peace with the people in my community, the community is seen as a place that gives me a platform on which I can be myself. And think of how For example, institutions of learning have been transformed. It used to be that one went to school to learn, to be shaped, to be formed, ultimately to be transformed. I come in not knowing as much as I think I do, and hopefully, by God's grace, I'm finished with the course. I know more than I do. Uh, That no longer is the case. Now they are not places... Where people can learn, there are places where people can perform. And so, if you watch the news at all, you might think, in fact, that students now run colleges and universities. Well, that's because the community is set aside except for being a place of performance. What is the Christian answer? What is the kingdom worldview? It well, was with most things, we have to start at the beginning and recall what the Creator said. It is not good for the man to be alone. In redemption, as God's people, we are to have a counter-value system. That's the gospel. We are to have a counter-rationale, that is calling. And we are to have a counter-community, the church. We are part of the kingdom of God, the family of God, the church. We're part of a community. It's not a place for us to perform. It's a place where we are to live and to be transformed. Paul said to the Corinthians, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. As part of the church, we are dependent upon one another. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. There it is, calling. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Being part of a community. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There are many passages like this in the epistles, but the point is clear. We belong to the people of God. We're part of the family of God. We belong to the church. And we are to be in the process of being transformed. As we meet together, as we are the people of God, we are to be transformed. The purpose of the church is not to give the individual a stage on which he or she can perform. The church is a place where we learn that we are, in fact, dependent upon one another. That's community. What about language? When you go back to the beginning, when God began to create the world, what we hear is language. Even before there are human beings, there is language. Let there be light. As God begins creating, and it culminates with, let us make man in our image. The creator is one who speaks with language, and language is a form of revelation. As God speaks to Adam, and he speaks to us. We are dependent upon it, but this is not how the surrounding culture views language today. As a result, we have drifted to a point where language, where words can mean little or nothing at all, or they can mean whatever we want. If you're familiar with the movie Princess Bride, uh, one of the characters, Vecini, a number of times keeps exclaiming, inconceivable, inconceivable. And finally, at one point, Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. To which someone today would say, it can mean whatever I want it to mean. Words are important. We are dependent upon Words. Language is a revelation. And again, we turn to the Incarnation, what John wrote at the beginning of his Gospel. What did he write? In the beginning was the Word, that is logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John intends here is deeply profound, but I am content at this point to argue that language is a part of our dependence upon the Creator. And I would remind you of what we read earlier here in Matthew 5, that anyone who says to his brother, Racha, that is someone who uses words, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, again using words, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. One more thing. To be human is to be broken and deeply lost. We've seen that the basis of creation is love. The proper status of us as human beings is to be dependent. But the necessity of recognizing that we are dependent was pushed aside by Adam and Eve. When the serpent said, God knows, you can eat this, you'll become like him. And they ate in rebellion. You will remember that after the flood people got together and decided to build a tower that will reach to heaven, and that way they would never be destroyed by a flood again. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If, as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Seeking to be autonomous to be sovereign, to be independent, not dependent on God whatsoever, having, they want to be like God and have freedom and knowledge, failing to recognize that these things come from the Creator Himself. People live in rebellion. And the consequences of these actions we see around us every day. We are human beings, okay, and we are mortal so we will one day die okay? decay, decay is inevitable but the fact that we are human is not diminished by the decay my body doesn't work the way it did 40 years ago but it doesn't make me less human okay. I am broken as are we all But God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the process of redeeming us in our brokenness. And God's redeeming is based on his grace. To be human is to be dependent. In the words of the psalmist in Psalm 36, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Apart from the creator, we can see nothing. We see only darkness, but we live in a world that has rejected the Creator, saying that He does not exist, that we are self-sufficient, that we can figure things out on our own, that there is no free will. By the way, if there is no free will, then there is no responsibility. It's not my fault. It's because of the genes that I have. A culture that tells us that I get to decide who I am and what is right for me and no one can judge me. Such a world sees no need for grace. No need for grace. If you're still in Matthew chapter five, I'd have you go to the beginning of the chapter. What is the first, what are the first words that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? How does it begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be human is to be dependent. We are dependent upon God. He's put us here. He created us. He sustains us. Let's never lose sight of that. Let's pray together. Our Father we live In a time Which humanity has made great strides And in doing so They've lost sight of so many things We're able to travel Great distances Some here in the congregation today Have traveled a distance That 200 years ago Would have taken a whole day Or more And yet, in a matter of 30, 45 minutes, people are here. Slowly but surely, we've lost our sense of being dependent. We lose sight of what it means to be human. And above all, we've lost sight of what it means to be broken and in need of your grace. I thank you for your love And your great grace In the face of ongoing rebellion You still remain gracious Even we whom you have called to be your children We have put our faith in your son Find ourselves drifting away And thinking somehow that we can do things on our own Forgive us, I pray. We live in a world that does not seek grace. It feels pretty self-confident in its own abilities. And yet, paradoxically, it is a world driven by fear. By your grace, you've called us to be your people. May we have a kingdom worldview. And may we live that out. May people see your love and your light in us. I thank you for your church, your people, a community. We are not simply to be individual believers, but a community. And in working together, we are to be shaped We're to be transformed As you do your work in and through us God of all grace We bow before you and give thanks May we think on these things And meditate on them in the days to come May we moment by moment Have a sense of your presence with us That you're always there with us May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.